Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. you know what if you've got a pumpkin patch and a corn maze that can bring in extra revenue if uh if you've got these beautiful pollinator strips that can serve as a wedding venue if uh if you can have hunters or fishermen pay day use fees to come on your land it all makes it it makes it easier to uh to keep that land profitable, if you will. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 102, Awards from Aldo. Now this week I'm going to be talking with Lance Irving. Lance is the Leopold Conservation Award Program Director for the Sand County Foundation. The foundation's sole focus is supporting voluntary conservation on working lands through ethics, science, and incentives. And this foundation was born out of the legacy of Aldo Leopold, who, if you remember, came up in last week's episode about the North American model of wildlife conservation. Now, a little bit about Lance. He's a former hunting and fishing guide. Uh, he's been working for 15, he worked for 15 years in the outdoor sporting goods industry. He's working to restore prairie and create habitat for wildlife on his family farm in southern Wisconsin. And what we're going to be talking about today, a little bit about that hunting and fishing guiding that he did. We're going to talk about some of the history and some of the basics of the Sand County Foundation, what the Leopold Conservation Award is and why it matters. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the past winners of this award in Pennsylvania. Uh, along with some other states, and then also some of the nominees in Pennsylvania as well. So let's dive right into what Lance has to let us know about the Leopold Conservation Award Program. All right, everyone, welcome back. As you heard in the introduction, I have a New guest, uh, first time on the podcast, Lance Irving. Lance, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Oh, uh, anytime I get to talk about conservation, hunting, fishing, any of that kind of stuff, it's always a good day. So this is just add this to another day on the list of being a good day. Uh, when I when you filled out the form that I, I have all my guests fill out in, ahead of time to get to know them, what they want to talk about, you know, give me ideas of what I might want to ask, see, you know, what kind of questions sort of align, that kind of stuff. One of the things you mentioned in your bio was that you were a, you are a former hunting and fishing guide. Uh, where did you do this guiding? <laughs> well, uh, I, I did it a little bit all over. I actually, I'm originally from upstate New York. Um, and so I grew up spending a lot of time in the Adirondacks and kind of some of the more remote areas in New York State. And I, I guided my first fishing trip at age 12 and oh, it installed a love of it in me and did it, you know, as a youth for a little while. 
And then when I was going to Michigan State uh, to study fisheries and wildlife management, I started in the summers guiding in Western Alaska. So the Bristol Bay region down through um, the Aleutian Peninsula. Um, so I guided, I guided there starting when I was in college and continuing on uh, after I graduated where I did a, a season or two down in Chile and Argentina um, when I wasn't working in Alaska and did some trips throughout the Great Lakes region and just, uh, I love to fish, I love to hunt, uh, found I had a pretty good knack at helping people be more successful than I was out in the field. So, uh, so it worked out well. Man, that is, you are uh, the definition of a world traveler there. That, that's <laughs> awesome. Uh, so give us one uh, quicker story of something memorable as a guide, or, you know, maybe the one of the best hunts or fish, you know, fishing expeditions. Something. Sure. Sure. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties now. So, uh, you know, this was 20 some odd years ago that I began. And uh, when I started in Alaska, my first year, I had an outfitter that was very, very old school that I worked for, um, you know, didn't believe in phones or things along those lines. It was, it was pretty old school. And I was 19, uh, just just really had never been in that area of Alaska before. And as the season progressed, he got a little bit more faith in my abilities and told me I was going to set up a spike camp for silver salmon on a river called the Mulchatna River, which is a tributary to the Nushagak in a, a very remote place. So as a, all outfitters do, one of your things that you try and pay attention to is expenses. So it's a whole lot easier to fly a guide out in a super cub with very limited supplies, have them set up a rudimentary spike camp and then fly the clients in the next day with the bulk of the uh, bulk of the items. Well, I'm there in my very first year, I got dropped off with nothing but a small dry bag uh, to set up a spike camp and weather happened, clients didn't want to fish for salmon. And next thing you know, it was eight days later before the outfitter showed up with uh, things like my tent. So um, got a very, very, uh, shall we say serious crash course in uh, wilderness survival. And when the clients did show up and my supply plane did show up, the clients of course knew absolutely nothing about what had transpired. Um, the pilot did, he gave me some strange looks as he's entering, because at this point I'm looking almost feral. Um, so the clients get off of the plane and they've got their, you know, the chef at the nice lodge, packed them a, a lunch. Um, so I got in my boat, I motored up to the closest hole I dropped the anchor. I said, you're in the front, you're in the back, give me your lunch. And I proceeded to sit in the middle of the boat and eat both of their lunch lunches while I told them stories about how I had been cooking salmon on a rock for the past eight days. And, uh, you know, they thought it was, they thought it was great fun. And uh, that was one of the better lunches I've ever eaten. Man, that, like you said, that's a crash course. That, um, I feel like 
even some of the most hardened guides, that might sort of turn them off to wanting to be a guide for, you know, any more trips after that. Well, I can tell you that was my last year working for that outfitter. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can definitely see why. Oh man, that's not a, that's not a story I expected to hear. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so the reason I feel like we could probably talk for hours about these different stories that you that you have, and um, but I, we got to get to the nuts and bolts of why I'm having you on, and. You are the Leopold Conservation Award Program Director for the Sand County Foundation. So let's just start with what is the Sand County Foundation and, and what does the foundation do? Sure. So Sand County Foundation, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. We're based in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, though we do work throughout the country. It's actually a nonprofit that began in 1967. So it's been around a, a little while. And what we, what we focus on is that is Aldo Leopold's idea of a land ethic and how that relates to farmers, ranchers, foresters, how we can not only empower them to make really good conservation decisions, but how we can make their life easier when they choose to, to go down the conservation road. Um, you know, so it's, it's we focus on those, those farmers, those ranchers, those foresters, those private landowners, if you will, but with the focus of how do we make conservation easier to implement how do we make other people realize the benefits of when your neighbor is doing really good conservation practices so that we can incentivize more and more people to do these things? Yeah, so for anyone listening, if that name, Aldo Leopold, sounds familiar, it's because he's basically the father of North American conservation. Um, he has one of the best selling conservation books with the Sand County Almanac. I've read it. Oh, probably 15 or 20 times now. Um, I mean, he's, he's really the go-to guy for the basic principles of what we do in our country now. Um, I actually took uh, a course through the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, that was, it was a land ethics course that was basically yep. just teaching, you know, what Aldo Leopold had to say. And um, it was great. I absolutely loved it. Okay, so you're the, the program director for the Leopold Conservation Award. What is that? <laughs> so the, the Leopold Conservation Award is it's a state-specific award that's in almost half of the states in the country now. It began in 2003, but what it, what it attempts to do is recognize farmers, ranchers, foresters, um, whoever is doing the best with their opportunities on private working lands. And now that's kind of a mouthful, but private working lands can mean many different things. It could be a dairy, it could be a, a Christmas tree farm, it could be a vegetable farm, it could be any number of things. And conservation is one of these things that is so, so site specific. You know, there's not a checklist that you go down as far as the right practices for 
anywhere in a state or in a, a region. What we attempt to do here with this program is we look at a few criteria such as conservation ethic and their innovation and their resilience. And people get nominated or they can nominate themselves. And we figure who is the best example of showing how conservation and production can and should have a symbiotic relationship in a state um, each year. So when somebody is selected, a couple of things happen. Uh, one, uh, they get a $10,000 cash prize. This is not a small plaque for the wall. This is a significant cash prize as well as a five to seven minute super high quality video that can detail their conservation efforts and share it uh, with other landowners, interested parties, all of that sort of stuff. So it's a program to recognize the very best of the best in each state, understanding that Pennsylvania is different than California and California is different than Texas and everyone's got their own challenges and opportunities. But how do we, how do we showcase some of the true heroes of conservation that are implementing it in everyone's backyard? Yeah, I, I hear one word um, over and over in, in what you've been talking about so far and that, I guess it's really two words, but uh, private land, you know, the sexy thing to talk about now is public land, um, the, the conservation that we, need to put on our public lands, um, that we need to be responsible in how we utilize the resources it, with conservation in mind. Why is it that, that, you're, that the foundation is focusing on <laughs> private land? Like that, that seems, it seems almost like counterintuitive compared to what everyone else is talking about. What's so important about private land? Well, it's, it, it, it is in the, the kind of the, one of the more typical narratives right now is, is the focus on public lands. And let me just say, I, I'm a fan of public lands. Public lands are an incredible resource. They're wonderful. Um, our country is blessed with some of the best in the world, public lands. Um, and so this is not anti-public land by any stretch of the imagination. But when we actually look at it, and it's something very few people ever consider, is in the continental US, about three quarters of the lands are privately owned. When you look at a state like Pennsylvania, 84% of all of the acres in Pennsylvania are privately owned. If you're going to make landscape scale changes and differences, most people don't focus on the 16%, they should focus on the 84%. And you know, when we look at each state is different, but Pennsylvania is not unique in having 84% of all the lands being privately owned. And so if we can influence those private landowners to take their 40, to take their 400 acres, to take their five acres, whatever it ends up being, and do good things on them cumulatively, we can have this enormous impact in a state and in a region or countrywide. Yeah. I mean, you know, while Pennsylvania, like I said, I mean, 
84% is privately owned. I mean, there's some great work being done on our public lands, you know, uh, state game lands that the Pennsylvania Game Commission has, you know, over one and a half million acres. And they do, you know, there's some good work being done there. But even if, you know, on some of the larger tracks of state game lands, it's 4,000 acres. And you can do great work on 4,000 acres. But if you if there's no work being done on any of the private land around it, it's just a 4,000 acre island that wildlife has decent habitat on but what happens outside of that right like we have we put these borders on you know we draw these lines on the map but the animals don't look at those borders they have no concept of that so yeah i mean i think it's great to to look at you know what can we do like you said everything from you know you have five acres up to five thousand. if you're able to make it more productive and and you know work conservation into your land management plan for your property you know, that is definitely the way to go for a lot of the United States, especially, you know, the Midwest and, and East. Right. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one of these things that um, when you start looking at, you know, habitat requirements or uh, kind of the ecosystem as a whole, you start, you start to talk about big areas. And like you mentioned with the neighboring lands, you need more than one landowner um, to to get on board with it. So we have to impact numerous people to to make that ecosystem function like it should. Um, And and that's that's why we focus on on private lands. Um, Not saying anything is wrong with focusing on public lands, just we've chosen to, to focus on, on kind of that largest share of acreage uh, in the country. Yeah, and it makes me think like, you know, my family, um, as listeners have heard me talk about over and over again, we have 70 acres in northwestern Pennsylvania. And, you know, when you look at just deer, for example, um, you know, the average home range size for white-tailed deer in Pennsylvania is between three quarters and a square mile. Mm-hmm. And our 70 acres is a drop in the bucket. So, you know, while we're, while we are working with the conservation ethic, um, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, what we do, because if no one, if none of the neighbors in that whole square mile don't do anything to help, um, I mean, are we helping? Yeah, because something's better than nothing, but is it having, you know, that large scale impact? It's not, um, you know, you got to, like you said, you need to look at that sort of you know, wider landscape level, um, you know, impact that, you, that you're trying to make for, as you said, ecosystems. Yep, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one of these things that's a, it, it's a rabbit hole that we could probably go down for hours if we wanted to. But if you look at how most areas of the country were settled, the first places that private land ownership took place are in the most fertile areas not only fertile for crops, but fertile for wildlife. Um, and so much of that is even a greater percentage of that most fertile land is privately owned. All right. So you've mentioned dairy farms, you've mentioned ranchers, you've mentioned vegetable farms. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a hunter. I'm a fisherman. Uh, why do yep. I care about these farms outside of my great uncle plants uh, corn and the deer like to eat the corn? So that's a spot sure. I can hunt. Like, why should I care that he is um, acting with this conservation ethic 
yep. whenever it comes to, you know, agriculture? Sure. Well, the, the couple of main points that I think connect hunting and agriculture um, in, in a way that's meaningful for hunters is, um, you know, like I, I referenced it before with how much of the land is privately owned, um, agricultural and privately owned forests make up the vast majority of that 84% of Pennsylvania that is privately owned. So the vast majority of whitetail habitat in the state, if you're a whitetail hunter, is on private land. Not only that, but the food sources, the, the bedding cover, all of that, chances are somewhere in a deer's life, it is utilizing that private land. Farmers have the choice um, whether they, if they're a corn and bean farmer, they can plant fence line to fence line and it's nothing but a stand of corn. Or they can leave habitat corridor strips. They can uh, have pollinator plantings. They can leave that back 40 woodlot alone knowing that the animals utilize it. So in one sense, it's a, it's a habitat um, thing. Along the same habitat line, um, something that doesn't get talked about an awful lot is habitat fragmentation. And the fact that um, even though people may be well-intentioned, the more that you split up a large undeveloped tract of land and put a house here and a subdivision there and a road here, it creates challenges for the wildlife and they're losing that connected habitat. When you look outside of say state game areas, when you look at the largest intact blocks of habitat in Pennsylvania, it's on farms, it's on managed forests. Um, so it's just these places that are producing these ecological benefits. I always like to say that, you know, a conservation minded farmer produces far more than food or fiber. They're, the, they're producing the habitat, they're producing the clean water for the trout streams. You know, they're producing um, the soil health, which helps the fertility of, of everything growing in the region. So it's really not only a, a thing about that is where the animals live, it's also just because an animal is born on a farm does not mean it's going, and I'm talking about like whitetails here, if a whitetail is born on a farm's back 40 woodlot, that doesn't mean that it's not going a quarter mile away to the state game area where somebody eventually may have an opportunity to harvest it. So just the, the landscape scale size, um, you know, it, it's a true, it should be something in my opinion where farmers and hunters are side by side because at the end of the day, there's a whole lot of commonality into the, what the end goals are. And that's, you know, making the land better for the next generation. 
Yeah. I, okay. So I want to take what you just said, which is all great stuff and break it into sort of three little parts there um, the, to try to sort of relate to what you said. Um, you talked about fragmentation, which, um, which we can, which has obviously happened a lot in the Eastern portion of the United States, but I feel like it's easier to grasp when we look out West, when we have migrating mule deer, um, migrating elk, um, you know, we think, hey, let's put Interstate 80 through this spot because that's a good spot to do it. And we didn't think about how that's going to impact wildlife. And now we have, you know, mule deer that stop short of Interstate 80. They may have migrated further before it went in. Um, we have subdivisions and houses going in where now, um, you know, where maybe at one time it was a mile wide area of this migration corridor has now been shrunk down to just one or two acres or, you know, even just a hundred yards, because that's the only place they can go. Um, so, you know, this, as you mentioned, the fragmentation has had a huge impact on wildlife. And as you brought, as you brought up, you know, it's, you know, when we fragment, it's because of, you know, we're making private lands out of this. So if we can manage our private lands, then it's going to lessen the impact of that fragmentation, right? Does, does that make sense? It absolutely does. I, I like to say that the land's last crop is a subdivision. Um, and it truly is because once a subdivision goes in, they very rarely go out and get turned back into a forest or a prairie or, or whatever. Okay, so now, so that's, that's one. Um, the second one, you mentioned, you know, the, the bean and corn farmer. Um, I, I hear stories all the time about um, my grandfather and my great grandfather um, going out and, you know, hunting pheasants that were just naturally on the landscape of Pennsylvania. Uh, we, I still go out and hunt pheasants, but they're now stalked by the Game Commission because we don't have the habitat to support the pheasant population, a healthy pheasant population here that would be more naturally occurring. Um, am I right to think that just the way that even, so one, we have less farms now than we did, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, but then also the way the farmers, some of these farmers are planting their crops now, like you said, fence row to fence row, um, or even just roundup ready crops where there's no weeds in the field, that's made, that kind of, those two things are really sort of um, impacting the, the overall habitat for the wildlife, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of these things where it's a, it's a tricky situation and people much smarter than, than myself um, will ultimately come up with the best solutions for it. But it's not an easy time to make a living as a farmer. Um, it's not. So when we're asking somebody that, hey, you know, there's these five acres um, on your property that aren't the greatest for production, maybe we should put them into CRP. Maybe we should just leave them fallow. Maybe we should plant some trees or a shelter belt or something there. Essentially, what we're asking that person to do is take a reduction in their income. Um, because if they are able to produce on that, um, then it gets, then they make more money and they're struggling as it is. So we, we, each situation is unique and 
I don't fault anyone for doing what they feel is right for their family and for their situation. I just want to make that completely clear. But if you've got that five acres that's not super productive, that you're not actually making very much money on, and we can provide somebody with the knowledge and maybe some assistance or whatnot to put that into wildlife habitat, then the entire community gets the benefit from that. So there are amazing technological advances going on in agriculture seemingly every day. Um, you know, when we start talking about um, practices that get recognized through something like the Leopold Conservation Award, things like no-till cover cropping, um, using a roller crimper or planting into green, all of these are also have that benefit of also helping wildlife or like pheasant population. If there's always something growing in the fields, there's always cover. Um, so that's a, you know, it's a it's a tough situation for a lot of folks. And I, I don't, I, I I'm not critical of people that uh, that aren't doing these things by any stretch. They have to do what's right for them. But oftentimes, a little bit of community support, community help. Um, can help them make that jump to that next level. That that five acres, if if the neighbor is like, hey, I will uh, I will help, you know, throw a couple of bucks your way so that I can walk down there and possibly flush a few pheasants out of that five acres. That might be enough to uh, to limit their their economic loss from ha having those five acres not in production. Yeah, it's that age-old dilemma of cost of inputs and then profits from outputs. And, you know, like you said, farmers are, are struggling. It's not an easy time to be a farmer now. It really never has been, but it really right. isn't now. And um, if we can, you know, between uh, precision agriculture and, um, you know, incentive programs and things like that, if we can sort of come together and find a way to make it work, uh, it really is beneficial to the wildlife. All right. So the, the last, the third way I want to look at this is from the fishing aspect, right? Um, and this is something in not where I live in Pennsylvania, but just a couple hour drive to the, to the east. Um, the impact that the farmers are, and ranchers are having on the landscape will, could possibly impact fishing in the Chesapeake Bay, right? Absolutely. So um, looking at, you know, using the use of herbicides and insecticides and fertilizers, um, you know, if you're, if you're using that in a, let's say, um, irresponsible manner um, and putting too much more than necessary on the landscape, you have runoff. Um, if you're using uh, older tillage practices where you're tilling under, uh, that's erosion that goes in the streams, eventually rivers, and then eventually Chesapeake Bay, that's affecting, you know, the marine life. Um, you know, so if we can look at a little more holistic approach, as you mentioned, cover crops, planting in the green, oftentimes we find that, you know, at least in the research I've read, that we can reduce the amount of herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers that we need, and then we have less runoff, um, and it's helping those streams and it's helping the aquatic life around that area. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, there's um, um, everything as we, as we learn more 
we do more and we get better at whatever we're doing. You know, there was a couple of decades ago, one of the big things was to fence the streams so that the cows wouldn't be in the streams. And that was, that was doing their part. And that's a great first step. Now, if you look at it, now there's buffers, uh, vegetative buffers along stream corridors that that is and that is has an even bigger impact because like you said all of those things whether they're chemicals whether they're nutrients whether they're soil loss from erosion they're going to run downhill and then eventually it's going to find a waterway well if you've got a 20 yard stretch of thick vegetation with a healthy growing root systems and all of that as that additional nutrients or sediment goes downhill, it gets stopped there before it can go into the stream. Much like um, you know, we read about whenever New Orleans has flooding about the loss of wetlands in the area. I think of, of stream buffers as mini wetlands for that particular stream. Um, and it, it works the same way because ultimately, if we can filter that stuff out before it gets into the stream, it prevents the problem of trying to clean up it after it's already been in that stream, flowed down, made its way into Chesapeake Bay, uh, all of that sort of stuff. So let's, let's look upstream and how can we stop the problem from occurring at the site rather than try and fix it later. Yeah, and as you mentioned, we, we have come a long way from the times of, uh, you know, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire, <laughs> uh, which is slightly different. That was a little more industrial scale, but, um, but you know, I mean, it, we, we have come a long way, but, you know, there's still more steps we can take and, and really, um, you know, education of these Absolutely. issues is probably going to have the biggest impact. Yeah. Um, all right, so you're going to recognize every year, how many states? Uh, we're recognizing 23 states. So um, in, in 23 states, there's going to be 23 people or families or, or working landscapes, private landowners um, that are being recognized. I mean, other than that $10,000 that that family <laughs> or that person is going to get, like, what does that do? What kind of difference is that going to make? Sure. So it, 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 it's amazing to see the impact of it in that um, I, I should start by saying most of these folks, almost, almost without exception, conservation-minded farmers, ranchers, and foresters generally are humble people. They're not doing this to try and get an award. They're doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do. Um, when we celebrate these folks, um, there's not a ton of really good news out there in the world today, especially when we start talking about agriculture and conservation. There's lots of, you know, terrible stories and doom and gloom and whatnot. There's not a whole lot of inspirational stories. And these stories serve as inspiration of what is possible. Now, if any of your listeners are marketing folks, uh, they may understand this a, a little bit better. We measure how often the Leopold Conservation Award recipient story gets picked up 
by different media outlets. And we do that through media impressions, which, you know, if it's in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, it gets one number. And if it's in the USA Today, it gets another. So last year, about 200 million media impressions were generated through these stories. So about 200 million people had the opportunity to read about a conservation success story. So one, we can let people know that there are really good things happening. The other thing that I think probably has a bigger impact than even those you know, hundreds of millions of people seeing this and knowing about it is the fact that when a farmer decides that they're gonna go on this conservation journey, oftentimes they're doing things that their neighbors are not doing. They are early adopters, they are innovators, they are figuring it out as they go for their particular area. It is an incredibly powerful thing to let those folks know that there are other folks out there like them that are, have that same land ethic that can serve as a resource uh, to, you wanna do, you know, a grass waterway project and you've got a unique soil type. If you find somebody else out that has that same soil type that has already been successful in doing that, it gives you not only that inspiration, but also that knowledge on how to be successful. And so we find that Leopold Conservation Award recipients, don't get me wrong, everyone appreciates getting a big check, um, but having that resource of other folks out there fighting the same fight that they are and having that network of folks that um, share a similar value, they find their tribe and that just inspires them to do even more, to be advocates for conservation and, and to be able to have that credential, if you will, to talk to their neighbor, to talk to other folks at their county conservation district or the Farm Bureau or whatnot and say, look, this worked for me. Um, and, and you can try it too. I, I would venture to guess too that it's having a pretty big impact in that local community of that farmer or rancher, right? Whenever, um, you know, if my, you know, local farmer or rancher uh, is even just a finalist in this award, but, it, or even, you know, best case scenario wins it, if I'm a farmer or rancher, all of a sudden now that might make me think, hey, maybe this is something I should be doing. And even if I'm not at the, the, the spot where I may get to be a finalist or win, um, I might start taking those steps towards that conservation ethic. And all, you know, every small step is going to be you know, a win in the grand scheme of things. Absolutely. I, I think what my favorite, my favorite kind of metric that, um, that the judges look at when measuring two great land stewards against one another uh, to decide who ultimately will be the Leopold Conservation Award recipient is the resilience category. It's not just environmental resilience, it's economic resilience. How have these conservation practices paid for themselves? 
It's not recognizing somebody that's just got extremely deep pockets that does all of these cool things and doesn't need the farm to turn a profit. It's how can you, how can you adopt something like a cover crop, a no-tilling strategy, whatnot, and within a relatively short amount of time, have it pay for itself so that the farm is more economically resilient as well as environmentally. Yeah, and I love the, the term, you know, journey that you used because th these aren't one-time measures. No. Um, these are things that, you know, are, you're taking steps this year and the next year you're taking the same steps plus a couple more steps. And it's always working and adjusting based on what the land needs, you know, any given year or any given month. Um, I, I absolutely love hearing that term journey when it comes to talking about conservation, because like I said, it's, it's never just a, a one-time fixed solution. Uh, have, have we noticed, um, I feel like anecdotally, I'm noticing this. Um, have you noticed that it seems as though this sort of younger generation of farmers um, that are taking over farms or deciding to become farmers that maybe don't come from a family of farmers, that they're looking a little more holistically at their use of the land and less about just try, just turning a profit. They're trying to obviously turn a profit and support themselves, which is something that they absolutely have to do, but they're trying to do it in a way that's a little more holistic and a little more conservation-based. Absolutely, and, and I, I see that manifest itself in a, in a couple of ways. Um, you know, we're in the midst of a large, generational transfer of land, um, you know, between farmers getting out and passing it on to their, uh, their children or selling it to a younger, um, younger family or, or whatnot. And making, making the economics and farming work is tough, even in the best of times. And one of the ways that many farmers have discovered on how to make, make themselves sustainable is through diversification, not only in crops, but hey, you know what? If you've got a pumpkin patch and a corn maze that can bring in extra revenue, if, uh, if you've got these beautiful pollinator strips that can serve as a wedding venue, if, uh, if you can have hunters or fishermen pay day use fees to come on your land, it all makes it, it, makes it easier to, uh, to keep that land profitable, if you will. And you have to think creatively. And with that, the health of the land um, becomes of the utmost importance. It's not just how many bushels you can create because you can create just as many bushels and also have this beautiful wetland complex, this beautiful forest, this thing that can draw more people to it. So not only do you feel good about what you're doing, but it also helps you um, make that land more sustainable in the long term. Yeah, that there's the diversification. Uh, we're seeing that both locally with a lot of local farmers taking um, 
unused barns and turning them into wedding venues, but then to keep them there to take their wedding photos, they're planting, as you mentioned, you know, flowers and, and pollinator habitat, and that's going to be good. Um, you know, my father went to uh, North Dakota on a, a guided duck and pheasant hunt that, you know, it's a ranch that had been in the family for well over 150 years. Um, that had been come that had come close to bankruptcy, and this last time they decided to diversify by, you know, inviting hunters to come on to hunt their land, and that was a way to to gain money without you know actively harvesting crops, and, and they could continue to. And now they, you know, that that homestead has now you know, yeah, they still get some money from crops, but you know that sort of gap that they may notice from year to year based on prices for crops is filled with these hunters that come on to take advantage of the conservation practices that they're putting in place. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, we're seeing it all around the country and it's a, it's, it's just a, it's another arrow in your quiver on, on how to, how to make things work. Okay, so we've talked uh, about, you know, these finalists, these winners, uh, we're, you know, we're based out of Pennsylvania here. So, you know, can you just highlight one or two past winners from Pennsylvania and um, that, you know, did some some great work and maybe the reason why they were chosen? Sure. So um, I, a couple that I'll, I'll highlight are, uh, we began the program in Pennsylvania in 2018. <laughs> And our first recipient in Pennsylvania was the DeFebo family. Uh, they're in Northampton County. And what they have done is really kind of fascinating because it's not something you think of it when you think of Pennsylvania agriculture. They rotationally graze a beef herd. Um, so they are managing their grasslands and their forest by utilizing cows to graze it, uh, which then they end up turning into a consumer direct beef uh, company. So people can come out, see how the cows are treated, see what they're eating, see them being grazed. And then ultimately, if they choose to, uh, to purchase some burger or steak, they can do that too. They also, one of the cool things, um, they took an abandoned Christmas tree farm that was neighboring their property and turned it into an outdoor laboratory for the local school kids to come see how livestock can be used to benefit uh, the land, how they can use grazing as a tool to manage the grass, um, add nutrients uh, in a manageable and sustainable way, and, and really showcase that you know, not only can they produce delicious food, but they can produce ecological benefits as well. Uh, so that was our that was our first recipient, and um, you know, we followed that right up in in 2019 with a with a dairy farm in Bradford County. Um, and the the dairy farm not only are they doing no till and cover crop um, and nutrient management. But they've made that conscious choice to uh, where they've got land that may not be suitable for, uh, for really high yield crop production. They're planting thousands of trees. Uh, they're creating wildlife habitats. They've protected their stream corridors out to like 50 yards on either side. Um, 
And in talking with them, that's the, the Jackson family, it was fascinating. Um, I, I asked kind of the patriarch uh, Dean, I was like, well, when did your conservation journey start? And he pulled out a conservation planning, uh, a, a conservation plan from the 40s. His family had a conservation plan starting in the 40s and each generation has been adding to it to make that land better. Um, you know, there's tons of little stuff that all of the recipients do that I could bore you to tears because I just find it fascinating that, you know, the dairy barn has solar panels on it so that they can produce the two thirds of the electricity from the farm just from their dairy barn roof and they collect the water and all that. But ultimately it's, you talk to these folks, you hear their story, and like Leopold mentioned, a land ethic. Um, and it just comes shining through. They want to do what's right by their downstream neighbors. Um, you know, they're not just focused on the house next door. They're focused on is clean water entering the stream that then flows to a public fishing area 15 miles away? Uh, that is the kind of thing that they're looking at. So it's there's great things happening all over PA. Man, that's awesome. And even better from the 1940s, man. That's, that's a long <laughs> time going, going back. Um, all right. So this year, uh, I saw it was just announced that there are three finalists for Pennsylvania. And the winner is going to be announced, I believe, at the Pennsylvania Farm Show. Correct. Um, that, which is a talk about a great venue to uh, have that announcement. There's going to be a lot of farmers there that are going to see this. Uh, so who are the three finalists for this year? Sure. The, um, the first one is from Lancaster County, uh, Brubaker Farms. Uh, Brubaker Farms is a, they do dairy, uh, they do broiler chickens, they have uh, some cash crops. They're really a fascinating. Uh, they're, they're a relatively large farm, uh, but they've been focused on waterway improvement, wildlife habitat, and utilizing a methane digester to um, to provide power to the community from their from their dairy animals, um, so that's a that's a pretty fun one. Uh, the second finalist is Glenn Kaufman of Perry County. He does uh, corn, beans, hay, and he's got a herd of about three hundred angora goats. Um, so he's doing no-till and cover crop and wetland restoration and figuring out how he can utilize the goat herd to help manage um, you know, invasive plant species and to graze his land while still producing these, these high quality fibers from the Angora goats. And last but definitely not least is the Doderer Farms in Clinton County. Um, they're, a, they're a crop farm right now in the transition of going from solely crops to also a grazing sheep herd. Again, the sheep to, um, to effectively graze their land, um, manage the, the plant life. And he, he truly just has a huge focus on soil health. Um, how does he make the soil better? I believe in some of the materials that I read from him, 
you know, he utilizes the sheep as a tool to improve the soil health, uh, not the sheep as a, as a marketable product per se, even though it is, he uses them as a tool on his ultimate journey of, of improving the soil health. But that's great to hear. Um, the one disappointing aspect of all this for me is I'm in Western Pennsylvania and <laughs> I didn't hear a single Western PA County. Um, I know there are a lot more farms, especially in central PA. And then, uh, you know, there's a decent amount out East. Um, but anyone listening, if you know a farmer here in Western PA, uh, let, let's, uh, let's get them on the board here. <laughs> let's, Absol- let's get absolutely. them involved. Uh, all right. So Lance, before, before you go, I want you to provide, you know, if someone's interested in what the Sand County Foundation is doing or interested in learning more about this award, um, where can they find that information? Sure. If you go to sandcountyfoundation.org, all the information you could possibly want is right there. And I would encourage anyone to go there. We have, since the program began in Colorado in 2003, we have recognized about 160 families all throughout the country. All of their stories are there. If you want to get inspired uh, about what's going on in Montana or California or South Dakota or, or locally in PA, there's those stories, there's those videos. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing to do for those that are interested in Um, in how far conservation on private lands has come and how much, how many resources there are out there to do right by the land. Yeah, that I've been on that website and there is a ton of info on there. And like you said, some inspiring stories that it's great to see. Uh, You can, anyone that's interested, either type it in yourself or you can just go down to the episode notes and you'll find that. Uh, Lance, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this. Um, I hope this inspires more people to just take if if they haven't already taken a step towards, you know, the land ethic and and conservation uh, to take that first step and um, get started because, man, it feels good once you once you see, you know, the work you've done start to take shape. Absolutely. Well, it was it was my pleasure. It's uh, it's always fun to talk about good news. And the fact that there's so much good news going on right now, I just encourage everyone to think about what's possible and what steps you can take to to make it possible. Well said, well said. Thank you. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild go visit today and become a sponsor that will do it for today's 
episode, and I don't know what I like most about what we just talked about. I don't know that if I like the fact that there are farmers and ranchers in our country that are just voluntarily doing good conservation work on their property, or that there's an organization out there that is trying to recognize these people for their work. Uh, both of the, those concepts are just awesome. That, that's great in my mind, and I love to hear about that. Um, it's amazing how much working lands can be tied to agriculture uh, and hunting, you know, tying that agriculture and hunting and fishing and conservation all together. We can, this, these people are proof that we can serve the human population needs and at the same time, do it in a sustainable fashion with conservation in mind and have good, proper outcomes. We can do it. Does it take a little bit of work? Does it take a little bit of extra money sometimes, right? But it's for the benefit of everyone and wildlife and the land that we are just utilizing. You know, it's this, this land that, that you may own, that I may own, that my family owns land. It's not our land. It's just our turn to take care of that land. You know, this land was, was has been here for thousands and thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be here for thousands of years after I am gone. And it's just my turn to take care of it. So we should take care of it in a holistic way, with an eye towards conservation, an eye towards sustainability. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I enjoyed it, and I love talking to Lance. Um, this is a great program. If you want to learn more about the Sand County Foundation or the Leopold Conservation Award Program, uh, check out the links down in the episode details and uh, learn more about this great, great cause that, that they have uh, been working towards. Until next week, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.